Acts 23, starting at verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, Is God going to strike you, you whitewashed wall? And are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I do not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were were Sadducees and the other part, other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. This week I had a sick moment in preparation for uh, the sermon. Uh, For the past, I'd say, 14, 15 years, um, in my desk at home, I had kept a a manila folder full of notes. Uh, And all the notes that I would put in this manila folder were notes of encouragement from past principals, other teachers, from students that I've taught, from uh, uh, congregants, uh, and I've lost my folder, and I'm kind of sick about it. It's the place that I go to when I'm discouraged, when I've hit my wall, when I feel like, man, do I really want to keep on keeping on? It's a place where I can hear the voices yet say, keep on, well done, you've encouraged me, you've spoke truth into my life, you've been a friend, you've invested in my life, take heart. But what I did find is, thank God, they're called remnants, I'll call them, on a bulletin board down in the basement, a magnetic bulletin board, I have a few left. And these are little pieces that I can still grab onto that encourage me. I got one from Sarah. Uh, thank you for passionately taking care of the flock of Missio Day Church. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom and teaching, your family and your home, and all your time. Thank you for your practical encouragements to follow Jesus. 
When you hear those words, it's like, at least Sarah believes it. You know? And I know she's got the gift of encouragement, but it's, it's a word of hope and encouragement to just keep on keeping on. I got uh, from a, a resort in, in, in Mexico from the secrets resorts and spas, uh, letters that Todd and Manda wrote on their honeymoon saying thank you for the time that Laura and I invested in them. It cared for them through preparing them for marriage. Got one from Jenny, Lorenz, and Liberty. And of course, no note without Jenny is without artwork, right? <laughs> it goes on and on. A card from my wife that just says, I'm honored to be your wife. I'm excited to watch how God continues to work in and through our marriage. Thank you for making me better. I love you, Laura. And then she writes this really neat thing at the end. In honor of this, I think you should buy the soft top for the Jeep. I love my wife. But these are all, these are all gifts. Words of encouragement, a, a thank you, the keep on keeping on. And, and here in our text this morning, we, we've got a similar kind of thing where Paul is, has hit the bottom. He has hit the bottom of his ministry And if I were in his shoes, I would be longing for a manila folder full of encouraging notes. George Herbert, a, a poet and a pastor, once said this, good words are worth much and cost little. Good words are worth much but cost little. It's true, isn't it? Our our words, some people will say, words are cheap. At the same time, words are worth much. Dr. Chapman wrote a book about uh, the different kinds of love languages. And I am a, the type of person that I need words of affirmation. Words are worth much to me. When I hear a positive affirmation, to keep on going at it, to keep on trucking on to push through this dark night of the soul. Keep on going. And they, they're worth much, but yet they cost so little. And for us to give a word of encouragement to someone who is feeling down, discouraged, is to be like the Lord himself. In our text, he stands beside the Apostle Paul in his prison cell and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you have, will also, must also testify in Rome. He's the Lord who encourages his people. He's the one who today, even if you are discouraged or tired, he is your strength and your encourager. No matter where you find yourself in your work life, your marriage life, your relational life, no matter where you are in your search for God, He is the one who encourages you. God encouraged Paul in three ways here this morning. In just this short little verse. First, we see in the theme that He encourages His servants, servants with His presence. 
in their difficult circumstance, his praise for their past service, and his promise in their future service. God encourages his service, servants in, with his presence in the midst of their difficult situation. That's how God works in the midst of our difficult situations in life. No matter where you are, if you are, have any kind of heart, and if you are really searching after him, you will find his presence. This was the fourth time that we know of that the Lord appeared personally to Paul. One time after this, an angel appeared to him. But first, we, we know that he was greeted by the Lord in an extremely powerful way on the road to Damascus before he was struck blind. The Lord met him face to face. Paul, why are you persecuting me? He had an up-close, personal presence with the Lord. Second definite time was in the temple in Jerusalem. Three years after his conversion, when the Lord told Paul that he must go to the Gentiles. The third time was when Paul was extremely fearful in Corinth. With everything that was going on, the Lord appeared to him in a night vision, telling him to keep on speaking, for he had, God had many in this city. So God spoke an encouraging word, and now these words came and he spoke these words of encouragement in Paul's difficult, dark night. We can see from this that the Lord knows our difficult circumstances. He is keenly aware of your circumstance as he is aware of Paul's circumstance there in Jerusalem. He is keenly aware. The Lord didn't need to send out a team of angels to find out where Paul was. The prison cell and guards didn't hinder the Lord from finding Paul. He knew exactly where his servant was geographically, and he knew exactly where his servant was emotionally and spiritually. And he knew exactly what his servant needed in that exact moment. And even though Paul didn't know it yet, the Lord didn't tell Paul about it in advance. The Lord knew of the plot that the Jews were forming against Paul, that they would not eat or drink until they killed him. The Lord knew exactly that. And yet the Lord knows even our difficult circumstances. And the enemy can only go as far as the Lord permits and no further. You'll read in Isaiah 54 this. No weapon, weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that arises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. You may be in a prison of difficulties. You may be having physical illness, a financial crisis, a heartache of, of a loved one who has no place for God in his or her life. Yet, where you feel that no one knows that you are, what you are going through, whatever your circumstances, even though no other human being may know your pain and your difficulty, Jesus knows. And not only does he know, he cares. Jesus knows and cares. 
And the beautiful thing is, we can also learn is that the Lord is with us. He is with us in all of our difficult circumstances. It's one thing to have a knowledge about it, and a lot of us have knowledge about other people's pain and circumstance. We know about it. The beautiful thing about the Lord is that He is with us. He doesn't just say, yeah, I know. Man, Paul, that really sucks that you're in that circumstance. I'm really, that really breaks my heart that you're saddened or that you got yourself in that place. Or, but the beautiful thing is that the Lord stood at Paul's side right next to him. More than likely, none of us will ever have a physical manifestation of Jesus until he comes again or before we stand beside him, see him face to face. Such visible appearances are extremely rare and we should not count on Jesus showing up physically right beside your bedside in your darkest night. But the Lord is present with us spiritually. And to say that is not a cop-out, it's the truth. In the Great Commission, Jesus promised, and behold, I am with you always. How? To the end of the age. I am with you always. Or in Hebrews 13, he promises after exhorting us to have the life to be free from a love of money, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. God is present and he's near. When we're in this fiery furnace, the Lord himself stands with us, if not physically as he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and? Very good. Sunday school did good for some of you. He is very much spiritually present where we can sense his presence. Sometimes he manifests himself in special ways through his word. How many of you have ever had that in your darkest time and you're just reading, God, just give me something. And all of a sudden, that very encouraging word just comes from scripture itself and you'll break out into tears or your heart is just emboldened like yes god again promises his presence he promises to be with me he promises to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and i'm not going to fear any evil for you are with me you are with me you're that kind of god sometimes it's through a word of encouragement from another believer that's why you know at the beginning i'm i'm kind of watching you know we started late this morning because I'm just sitting here going, they're doing exactly what I want them to do. This is an encouraging community of believers who love one another. And sometimes it's in those casual conversations where we say, hey, I prayed for you today or this past week or how are you doing? And you can see the pain in somebody's eyes or the way that they carry themselves in and just say, hey, how can I minister to you? What can I, do you need something? Are you okay? I've experienced both and they've been precious. Precious gifts from God in spite of the difficulties. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're going through, if you're a child of God, He is with you. He will show you his presence through his word and through the encouraging word of believers. 
Monsieur Day Church, I want, I want to encourage you. Brothers and sisters, God has given you the gift of language. And you don't need the spiritual gift of encouragement to encourage one another. Make a phone call. Send a text, a Facebook message, an email. Show up and be present. Use the gift of language that God has given us to encourage one another. We need to learn to lean on His promises that He will never desert us or forsake us and know all of our difficult circumstances. He knows all these circumstances and He is with us in all of them. The beautiful thing is that Jesus also knows exactly how we feel in these difficult circumstances. The God, our Lord does not waste words. Know that. Jesus doesn't waste words. He doesn't say, take courage or take heart, unless he knows that his or her, the servant is discouraged. Jesus just doesn't float, you know, throw them around, just say, ah, be encouraged. Take courage. Take heart. Jesus just doesn't throw them around like we tend to. They are intentional. Paul was disappointed over the way things had gone in Jerusalem. The church had not really appreciated his ministry there. He had been falsely accused and badly beaten. And now he was feeling depression that usually follows physical injury. He was alone in his cell. His, he was feeling uncertain and fearful about his future. Would he ever go to Rome and preach as he wanted to? Perhaps he was even wondering where the Lord was in all these trials. I know these promises, God. You'll never leave me nor forsake me. I know all these promises that I found in Scripture as I've been taught. Where are you? The reality is, Paul was human. But the Lord didn't condemn Paul, did he, for being discouraged? But he didn't leave him staying there either. He understands our feeling because he is fully human. Hebrews 2, 16 says, For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ identifies with us because he understands God made man, fully God, fully man, and he identifies with us. So he fully understands how we feel, but he wants us to learn to deal with our feelings in a godly manner. You've probably heard this expression, feelings aren't right or wrong, feelings just are. Anybody heard that or some version of that? Feelings aren't right or wrong. Feelings just are. There is both truth and error in that statement. The truth of it is that we shouldn't deny how we feel in an attempt to look more spiritual. Perhaps I'm feeling angry, and uh, I don't know if you've ever had that, and I know that my anger is sinful, or, or, or I should say with clenched teeth, you know, I'm not angry. But it's obvious to everyone else in the room that I am P.O.'d. I am at a place where I am just angry. But in an attempt to be spiritual, 
I write it off and try to hide it. But it's obvious that we need to be honest on how we really do feel. But the error in that exact statement is the implications that feelings are morally neutral. And that we're not responsible for them. And we can't do anything about them. But the Bible is pretty clear that our feelings are sinful and need to be conformed and sometimes even put aside. Anger is usually sinful. There's a righteous anger, absolute righteous anger, right, that God gives us. But then there's a whole different anger that is coming out of a sense of pride. You have wounded me, so I am angry at you. Sometimes depression. And I know that I'm stepping on some pretty scary ground, but sometimes depression is sinful when it stems from self-pity or not trusting God. Anxiety is sinful. Even when we're in the midst of a storm at the sea and we're afraid that we're about to die, God rebuked this, the disciples in the situation for their lack of faith. Bitterness is always, always sinful, no matter how badly we've been hurt. So once we've admitted how we feel, we need to process our feelings biblically. Understand that they're not morally neutral. They're, they're real. And often they're sinful. But we also need to know that the, the Lord gives us a gracious command to encourage us in our difficult circumstances. He gives us a command. And if we read this, this verse 11 way too quickly, you miss the command. Four of the seven uses of this verb take courage or take heart. I'm a little confused why this is the only, this exact same verb used seven times throughout um, the New Testament is used only this time as take courage. I don't know why the translators did that, but it's take heart or take courage. Four of these seven uses of take heart or take courage come from Jesus' lips. Listen to this. To the paralytic laying on his bed, Jesus said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman with the hemorrhage who touched the fringe of Jesus' coat, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. To the disciples who thought Jesus was, that Jesus walking on the water was a ghost, and he immediately spoke to them, Take heart, it's me, don't be afraid. To the disciples on the night that, that he was betrayed, Jesus said, I have these things to, to say, I have said these things to you that you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the only other usage that was when uh, the bystanders told blind Bartimaeus, take heart, get up. He's calling you. Truly, Jesus is the Lord who encourages those who are discouraged and without any other hope. But I want you to note that it's a command. It's a command. It's gentle and it's a courageous command, but it's a command. In the Greek, it's called an imperative. 
take courage. Take heart. It implies that we can choose to obey it or not obey it. If we disobey it when we stubbornly refuse to receive the help that he sends us through his promises or his words or fellow believers who try to encourage us, that, that's disobedience, to not take heart. When, when somebody, a brother comes to you or sister comes to you and says, hey, I want to encourage you. You know, I believe that God is doing this and saying this. And you just say, you know, whatever. I'm right here. I, I get it. You don't understand. And that's a gift from God saying, take courage. Or it's found clearly in his word that, that I'll never leave you or forsake you. Even if you're going to walk through this valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil. And you go, yeah, whatever. God, you have no idea about my circumstances. How would you even know about my pain or my difficulty or my, my, the absence of this person in my life, the lack of love that I'm feeling here? What about this? You have no clue. And Jesus goes, are you really? Are you really pulling that out? I'm fully human. And fully God, I understand. Take heart. Be encouraged. And we obey it when we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithful love. And we trust his word. So the main way that God encourages us through it is with his presence in difficult circumstances, but the Lord also encourages his, his servants with his praise of our past service. The Lord tells Paul that he has, he has witnessed faithfully. He has seen him witness to his cause in Jerusalem. Way to go. You, you, way to go, Paul. I, I've seen what you've done. He was no doubt referring to Paul's courage when he, he addressed the mob that was trying to kill him in, in the temple precincts. But I think God was also referring to Paul's testimony before the Sanhedrin, although it didn't seem to go so well. In neither instance is there a record of any conversions. A huge mob, but Paul shared the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul had an opportunity before the Sanhedrin, the leaders, and there's not one recorded conversion. But making converts is not our job. Our job is to bear witness for the Lord and leave the results to Him. Bear witness. All too often, we judge our service to the Lord by the results that we can measure or see, right? Capacity 96. Seating capacity 96. Let's put it through some metrics of success. By the world standards, are we successful? No. When's the last time we've seen a, a baptism of somebody, somebody who's come to faith and profess their faith in Christ? It's been a long time. Are those the metrics? How many have showed up to a meeting or an event or how many have made decisions for Christ or how, 
How many gave a positive feedback for what we did? If we consistently receive negative feedback or maybe even people leaving or maybe no feedback whatsoever, we would, we would probably evaluate whether our manner or methods, if something is wrong there, right? That's, that's what we've been taught. But in some cases, such as the prophet of Jeremiah, I'd, I'd encourage you to check out Jeremiah's uh, his writings there. We may faithfully serve the Lord for many years with many negative and few positive responses. It's a whole book, the book of Jeremiah. I don't know how Jeremiah plugged through, how he made it through. Because you know what? Time after time after time after time after time after time, there were no positive results. The main criteria for evaluating our work for the Lord is this. Was I faithful to God's word? Was I faithful? And am I relying on him and acting in obedience to what I believed he wanted me to do? Am I being faithful to God's word and am I acting in faith working that out in such a way that I'm calling brothers and sisters to Christ to greater faith in Him, to greater holiness, to greater trust. Am I doing that? Trust me, doing that will often dwindle a congregation. But it's also strengthening those who are remaining for greater faith. If you can answer yes, to you being obedient. Even if you catch criticism, criticism, you know in your heart that the Lord was pleased with your service and someday when you stand before him, he will say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. The Bible has many promises that the Lord commends to his servants. And here's two. Hebrews 6.10, write it down. Hebrews 6.10 For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as all of you do. God isn't unjust in overlooking your faithfulness and your hard work and your love. God isn't unjust. Hear this from 1 Corinthians 15.58 in the context of the resurrection of the body and the Lord's return, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you hear a keep on, keeping on? Keep on, keep on, keep on. Whatever you do to serve the Lord, He remembers and He will reward you for it. Even if no one appreciates it, even if no one pats you on the back or on the butt, even if no one writes you a, an encouraging note, email, Facebook, anything, He appreciates what you have done. And the Lord says, like He did for Paul, thank you for standing for my cause. So he encourages servants with his
his presence in difficult circumstances, and he also praises them for their past service that they have done. But lastly, we're going to see that he encourages his servants with a promise of their future service. There's a promise for your future service. So you must witness in Rome also. As you testified here in Jerusalem, so you will also do so in Rome. The Lord doesn't bother to tell Paul of the impending plot to kill him. Because I think that would have been unwise. If I would have been sitting in Paul's place, extremely discouraged, and God said, listen, way to go in Jerusalem. You're also going to have to do it in Rome. But just so you know, they are out to kill you. I would have said, hmm, no thank you. But God in his wisdom, he doesn't tell him even that Paul is going to have to sit in custody in Caesarea for two years, under guard for two years, where he has had extreme freedom for the past, how many years of his ministry? Now for two years, you're going to be under lock and chain and under guard for two years. God doesn't even tell him about the shipwreck that's going to be coming or that he's going to go to Rome as a prisoner. But he does tell Paul that he is going to bear witness in Rome. Even if Paul made a mistake by going to Jerusalem, as some people said that he did, or by going along with some scheme to go into the temple to take care of a, take part in a Jewish ceremony and sacrifice, as I think he made a mistake, no, there is no word of rebuke found at all here. Rather, the Lord commends Paul, commends him for his past service and promises that he is not done with him yet. I'm not done with you, Paul. As you've done in Jerusalem, hey, take heart. You're also going to do that in, in Rome. And listen, the word must here, you must bear witness also in Rome. The Greek word means it is necessary. It is necessary that you do this. Luke uses it 22 times in Acts. It is necessary. The Lord uses the same word again and again through the angel who appeared to Paul in the storm just before the shipwreck where the angel said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. It's necessary. So could you imagine the waves are coming over the, the edge of this boat and it's getting ugly. There's a huge typhoon looking kind of thing going on. And the angel stands beside him and says, don't worry, it's necessary. You, you're, God's not done with you yet. It's critical that you do this. When God says you must, you know that it's a done deal and it's going to happen. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, said this, God's servants are immortal until their work is done. No servant of God dies a premature death. Let me read that again. Because sometimes I think when we, somebody dies close to us, we go, oh, uh, you know, we kind of make excuses and we, listen, God's servants are, they're immortal until their work is done. They're immortal. 
We will live forever until our work is done. No servant of God dies a premature death. We all die timely deaths. You are not done until God says your time is done. And then there's that nice little coffee cup verse from Jeremiah 11. Does anybody know what that one is? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We kind of put that on a little coffee coffee cup and makes us all feel warm and fuzzy, you know, oh, whatever. It's often taken out of context, really not understanding what's going on here. It's an encouragement. That was God's promise through Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon that after 70 years of captivity, 70 years of captivity, some of us don't even have a day that we can bear through an issue, right? Man, I'm frustrated. This whole day has been a waste. And try 70 years. And God is saying, after 70 years of, of captivity, God would visit them and fulfill his word and bring them back after 70 years. So when you read that on a coffee cup or you recite it to somebody, know it might be 70 years. Hey, I want to encourage you. God has a plan for your life. Maybe in 70 years. But, but God has a plan for you. And that is also his promise to all of our, us as servants who might feel exiled or at some distant Babylon kind of place to set us, that we are set aside for his purpose. His purpose and in God's time. It is his word to those who feel forsaken in some figurative or literal kind of prison. Nursing the bruises that they've received for their service to him. The Lord says, I have plans to prosper you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It might not look like what you think, but I've got plans. Take courage. For you must be my witness in Rome also. Even though you're wounded, even though you're tired, even though you've been beat up, you're emotionally tired, you're physically tired, you're spiritually tired, you are just tired in every aspect of humanity, you are tired, but if you are still breathing, God is not finished with you yet, so take courage. The same one who knows of your pain and your exhaustion and your frustration is the very one who will take you up on wings like eagles and carry you through. He is your shepherd who will bring you to streams of water, to, to green pastures to feed you. In G. Morgan Campbell's sermon called Take Courage, he asks this question, how are we to obey him? You know, kind of how can we take courage when we're fearful or when we're discouraged? How, how can we obey him? How are we to obey him? And G. Morgan Campbell concludes that the only way to get a clear vision of the Lord himself is to have open eyes. It is to see Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith who endured such hostility of 
sinners against him. And then he observes this. Throw this quote up, Leah. All of our fear and all our panic results from a dimmed vision of the Lord. A dimmed consciousness of Christ. Let that sink in. All of our fear and all of our panic result from a dimmed vision of the Lord. Not seeing well. A dimmed consciousness of Christ. Kind of connotes this idea of not even thinking clearly and robustly and healthily, healthily about the Lord. Not seeing Him as the one who will carry us through. A few paragraphs later, he states this, there is no refuge for the soul of man other than the Lord Christ. Paul witnessed to the grace of God in Jesus Christ until the day of his death. And God blessed that witness. Moreover, the Lord Jesus Christ stood with him and strengthened him as he made it to the end. He finished the course. He ran the race for the prize. So if you, like me, if we can be honest, are discouraged about your present difficult circumstances, if you can be honest, if you're discouraged, or you're feeling down about past mistakes, that you made or anxious about the future, the Lord wants you to take courage. Take courage. He is with you in the midst of your trials. He commends you for your past service and He promises to use you again in service as you continue to walk with Him. He's commending you. And as the Lord encourages you, I want to encourage you seek to be his channel his channel of encouragement to others remember George Herbert's words good words are worth much and cost little as you have been encouraged so encourage others. Amen? Let's pray.